we start with our opinions, and then we say that God is on our side. So when people oppose us, we tell them, hey, you're not arguing against me, you're arguing against God. An example of this is um, uh, one of my colleagues, I'm part of a pastoral cohort, and we meet monthly. And uh, one of my good friends uh, is a pastor in San Francisco, uh, Reverend Gerald Mann. He is a pastor at Sunset Baptist Church. And he talks about, sometimes when we talk about the narrative of immigrant migration, we think like it's all the same story. But consider this. Many of us think of an immigrant story as the group came as workers, they kept and uh, redefined their family, they kept their language, they kept their culture, they were allowed to educate, and they knew their ancestry, and they eventually assimilated. But Reverend Mann shares the story is like, do you know my story is actually, we came as captives, we were stripped of family, we were stripped of language, we were stripped of culture, we were kept ignorant, withheld from education, and we do not know our ancestry. Can you imagine how different that story is? So when we say, oh, you know, you know we're, we're all immigrants here, we all have a similar background, and what worked for me works for you, we begin to collapse stories, and we don't realize that some stories are very different. When we don't recognize the difference of our stories, we lazily use false narratives that speaks for everybody, or perhaps only speaks for us and speaks over other stories. And if you study world history, this is where all different kinds of dangerous paradigms emerge. For example, how did Christian culture create a biblical justification of slavery? I think nowadays, many of us, most of us, I would hope and assume, that we would agree that slavery is wrong. But there was definitely a time where it was debatable because there was a theology, a weaponized theology that kept slavery in place. And the reasoning was something like, you know, slavery is found in both the Old and New Testaments. Uh, we read in 1 Peter, there was an admonition, uh, admonition to submit to all human uh, authorities and institutions. And there was a teaching that slaves must obey their masters. But what was kind of forgotten all of this dialogue was that the institution of slavery in the first century was a very different kind of institution than what happened in slavery in America in the 17th and 18th century. You know, advocates of American slavery, they tried to justify their use of the Bible by presenting the Christian moral benefits they talked about how slavery removed people from a culture that worshiped the devil, that practiced witchcraft and sorcery and other evils. They said, oh, well, slavery brings heathens to a Christian land where they can hear the gospel. And Christian masters provide religious instructions for their, slave, for their slaves. But most of the religious instruction was really about, you better keep in line with your masters or else God will punish you. Going even further past traditional Christian models in American Christianity, we see that the idea of the white savior is spoken about even more explicitly, like in things like the Book of Mormon. If you look in 2 Nephi 5, it actually talks about how dark skin color is a sign of God's curse 
and that God's intention was fairness and whiteness of skin. Now, I talk about this narrative because some of us, when they hear it, you might be a little shocked that people bought into it. Some narratives are bold in the way that they work against um, they work against the dignity and worth of others. But I can assure you that those ideas and those concepts are still alive today. We have to be very alert and aware because even in the time of the Thessalonian, uh, the Thessalonian church, Paul recognized is that there are many people who speak as prophets. Recognize, though, that not all prophetic words are bad, but some prophetic words are dangerous and, in fact, weapons against what God desires. There are some stories that come in the name of God, but when we unpack them with the truth of the gospel, we realize that these are false prophecies, false words, false truths. Consider also false narratives against the Asian Pacific Islander community. In particular, you know, I've mentioned this before, but think about what they call the Asian model minority. If you go to learningforjustice.org, they give a summary of that, and I'm sharing some of those things here. But this is a very common thing, and I don't know if you've even heard about it growing up, but we often refer to it now in um, Asian Pacific Islander circles as the model minority myth. And basically, we call it a myth because it's based on stereotypes. What it does is it seeks to put forward this narrative that you know, Asian American children are scholastic overachievers and accomplish in all kinds of refined arts. Right? And within the myth of model minority, we see tiger moms who force their children to work harder and to be better than everyone else. While we have these nerdy, effeminate dads who hold prestigious, but not leadership roles. And they hold uh, positions in STEM industries like medicine and accounting. And what this myth does is it characterizes Asians as successful, polite, law-abiding people. And because of their innate talents and their submissive nature, their pull-up-yourselves by the bootstraps, they provide this model of the American dream. But what needs to be exposed is, like all stereotypes, it erases all the individual differences among individuals. What the minority myth does is it conveniently ignores the diversity of Asian Americans. It also operates alongside the myth of Asian Americans as perpetual foreigners, but foreigners who are safe, not needing our help, and thereby justifying that we don't need to go out to the margins to help others. It's a collection of stereotypes that we see in popular culture, where if you're a man, you're some kind of samurai or you're like a kung fu master if you're a woman you're a submissive amazingly overly functioning housewife you're a submissive object of desire and if you're gender non-binary or transgender uh, you simply do not exist and you have no story some of you might recall mickey rooney's performance of breakfast at tiffany portraying, I think, a Japanese person, but I'm not even sure because it was so obnoxious. Many people, that stereotype still lives on in their minds. But the danger of all of this is to say that 
we actually are not all the same. We are all not all successful. We actually do have needs. And in fact, a lot of why we had to struggle so hard is because we had no resources and no one was there to help us. But rather than recognizing that we need those, we need that help, we need to be recognized, we need a voice, people say like, oh, look how well they did without a voice. They don't need one. The myth says that Asian Americans have played within the rules to their own benefit. And the success of some groups of Asian American immigrants is often held as an example against other minorities. And they use the Mal Maimori myth. They use successful Asians who actually did get success as a weapon against those who aren't. They say, why can't you be like them? I'm sad to say I can only speak from my own experience. I've had my Korean elders talk very, very poorly against other minorities, saying things like they're lazy, they don't try like us. If they were only like us, they would do better. And so in fact, they bought into the myth themselves, when in fact, they also are struggling and they don't see the common humanity. The model minority myth is often used as evidence to deny or downplay the impact of racism and discrimination. To also recognize that a lot of the benefits that Asian Americans receive are because of a civil rights movement of black America that came before us when we immigrated. And we don't recognize that we are deeply indebted to that movement. One thing that's very troubling for me in the whole Black Lives Matter movement is that Asian Americans are held up as an example against this movement. And Asian Americans are even used as a way to perpetuate anti-blackness. I think of the riots in LA where the black community and the Korean community were pitted against each other because of this narrative. This is just an example that I'm going deeper into because JBC comes from a Japanese American background. And for those who do not share that background, I want to share this so that you can hear and know that not all narratives are true. When we look at a false narrative, we need to hold up to the true narrative of the gospel of Jesus Christ where it says boldly in Ephesians chapter four, that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One of the most powerful movements in modern Christianity was a movement called Azusa Street. And whether you associate with this charismatic movement or not, the great amazing thing was people from all kinds of diverse uh, backgrounds of ethnicities, all encountered the power of God in one place, regardless of their socioeconomic background. It was unprecedented and unheard of at the time. It changed everything because they realized in that moment that there was one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Colossians chapter 3 verse 11 goes further to say that there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Colossians even goes further to name that if you have any ethnic divides, if you have any socioeconomic divides, social, uh, social status divides, it doesn't matter because in Christ, we are all one. You can go further into the gospel of Galatians where it says that 
it's not, not neither male nor female. It goes through all the different distinctions to say that in, by grace, we are all one in Christ. There are many things that seem appealing. One of the most dangerous things about the serpent we read in Genesis is that he was not completely wrong. The most dangerous false narratives are not completely false because they're very easy to identify. The dangerous narratives are the ones that sound religious. They sound like Jesus. They use religious words. The serpent certainly sounded spiritual. Did God really say that? For you shall surely not die. And then sort of they didn't die on the spot. But ever since that fateful choice, we have been on a course towards death. Death away from God, death away from each other. And so the question I want to ask for all of us is how can we discern between false narratives? And I don't believe we are simply at the whim of like the most charismatic preacher. There are many things that we can do to test the spirits, to test what is good and to hold on to good and reject what is evil. And so there are these five things that kind of came to mind for me, and I just wanted to share them with all of you. And the first one I want to talk about is, does it cause us to make God in our own image? Are we shaping God into our opinions, or are we letting the word of God shape who we are? If we're living in the way of Jesus, does this sound like a way that Jesus would take? And this is, this is a tricky thing. What do I mean by shaping uh, God in our own image? This is one of the great commandments that God was very serious about. Don't worship graven images because graven images were basically acting like we were the ones who shape like God shapes. The only true shaper is God. And what we do when we shape is we often make it in our image or the things that we understand. I don't know if you've heard of something called proof texting. And often what it is is like, I have an opinion. I'm very passionate and strong about it. So let me go into the Bible. I'm just going to flip through as fast as I can. I'm going to find those things where like, oh, that sounds like it backs me up. And what we end up doing is we use the Bible as a weapon. I try and figure out what I feel, what I believe. And now I'm going to see if God can get on my side. How many times have I seen churches where we have a certain stance or an opinion and we ask God to baptize it? And we use religious words that makes us sound so pious in doing so. But what we are doing is we are making God in our own image. What would it be like if we looked at the scriptures and realized this is a very difficult, uncomfortable text? If you feel like when you read the Bible, it is not convicting you, it's not challenging you, it's not actually challenging where you're coming from, then I think you're reading it wrong. The Bible is uncomfortable. Jesus is a very uncomfortable person. I have a hard time when I'm reading the Gospels. Do you feel uncomfortable? And if you feel like Jesus is always on your side, if Jesus is always agreeing with you, if Jesus is always cheering on your opinions, your politics, your stances, then maybe you need to slow down a little bit because I think you're reading it wrong. Maybe you're putting Jesus in your own image. The second thing I'd like to ask is, does it pit us against our neighbor? Another way to say is, does it keep us from loving our neighbor? When Jesus is asked, what is the essence of the law? The Pharisees and the scholars thought, oh, we got him. We got him. How can he possibly sum up the entirety of the law? 
And Jesus very thoughtfully says, love God with all of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the sum of the whole law. Well, that was tidy. So then we have to take very seriously then the second law is that are the things that we push, are the narratives that we do, does it really move us towards loving our neighbor or does it justify us from staying away from certain people, from excluding others? Now remember, after Jesus says this, someone tries to push Jesus a little bit and says like, ah, oh, loving your neighbor as yourself, that sounds kind of extreme. Can you limit the parameters a bit? And so what Jesus says is, well, let me tell you a story of what it looks like. And he talks about someone on the margins who loves someone who is in the majority, someone who really goes out of themselves at great risk to love other people. Despite prejudices and discrimination, it was the story of the good Samaritan. And Jesus is saying this Samaritan is more on the side of God than all of you pious Jews because he moved in loving neighbor. So if we have justifications from God to build walls, to build separations, to build up prejudices, then you need to ask yourself, is perhaps this a false narrative? The third thing is, does this narrative deny that everyone is made in God's image and so we are all worthy of love, honor, and respect? This is really important because, you know, back in the day, we were not as connected. The one, one of the greatest things that the internet changed for our entire world was to realize that we are all somehow connected, literally, by a network. We cannot escape the fact that we are in an incredibly diverse and ever-diversifying world. Something that, you know, if some of you know, like I am an adjunct teacher at SPU and Something I, I tell my class every quarter is like, look, I don't know where you came from. I don't know your story, but you deserve honor, dignity, and respect because you are made in God's image. I know that not everyone there has the same faith convictions as me, has the same opinions or stances as me, but I tell them, even if you told me all those things, this will not change. In this church, wherever you're coming from, whatever your understanding of God is, whatever it may be, you deserve the honor, dignity, and respect of being made in God's image. Now that feels threatening because some people might feel like, well, are you endorsing their opinions and stances and whatever? And it's like, no, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying if we could just start from the very beginning of all our relationships and say, look, I don't know anything about you, but you are loved by God because you are made in God's image. How different evangelism would be? How different would the teaching in churches be? How different would be the way that Christians interact with the world? Anything that does not talk about this fundamental truth that was very evident at the very beginning of the Bible, if this is not in the forefront of our narratives, then the narrative must be exposed. So the fourth thing, does this narrative ultimately bear the fruits of the Holy Spirit towards God and others? Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, 23, it says this, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
And I really want to stress that last phrase is against such things there is no law. So when we see these kinds of things like happening in greater measure, right? Joy, patience, right? Forgiveness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That means that that's in the move of the spirit. But if we begin to give stories where these things are shrinking or disappearing, where things like hate, prejudice, where things like indifference, where things of oppression, they begin to flourish. We need to see that we're no longer moving in the Holy Spirit. I think sometimes people think, what does it mean to move in the Holy Spirit? And they make it like a sort of a spooky, wooky feeling or something like that. But Galatians tells us here is that when you're moving in these things and you see them moving in greater measure, you're moving in the Holy Spirit. Whatever your theological background is, like this is clear in the scriptures. There is no law against this kind of thing. Do you do this in the narratives that you share? But if you have a narrative that's speaking into your life or speaking over you, and it's destroying these fruits, you would be wise to stop and wonder if this narrative is indeed from God. And the last thing is, are we taking teaching or a narrative from another time and unthinkingly applying it to today? What's the context? So, you know, more less less seriously, this isn't a very great example, but some people ask, would Jesus drive a BMW? Right. And I get annoyed with this sometimes because I'm like, well, in the first century, there were no BMWs. Right. <laughs> so in a way, it's a silly question. But the bigger question we should be asking is like, what is a BMW? What does it represent? So that's why also when I was talking about slavery, we look at Paul talking about slavery, but we don't ask the questions of like, what was slavery during that time? Can you simply jump 18 centuries and you say, well, that word is there and I use the word slavery. Do you know that words evolve over time? Cultures evolve over time. You can't just like pick and choose, cut and paste. There are many things. I think there was a time in our world where saying Oriental was completely fine. But can, you, can I tell you the truth? If someone said to me like, oh, are you Oriental? I'd be incredibly offended. And I'd hope you would be too. There are things that we have to change and understand. Did you know the Japanese culture, as some of you might know, is like there was a time where they all really believed like they were descendants of Amaterasu and they were descendants of the sun god. So literally they were descendants of the center of everything. If you look at the Chinese characters of China, it literally means middle kingdom, which means we were the center of everything, right? Now it's changed. We realize that China is not the center of everything, that there is no one group that descended from the sun gods and everything else is subservient to that. We need to see, like, are the teachings that we take from another time and are we imposing it on today? When people, I had mentioned before that people say that this is the hymn, like, chosen and, and ordained by God. And then I ask, well, did you know that hymn, actually, that came from a drinking pub song? And uh, they just changed the lyrics, the Christian lyrics, so that could be a form of outreach. And that was only a couple of centuries ago that that song emerged. There is no one context that we just take and say, like, this is what God is saying for all of us. How can we thinkingly and thoughtfully and prayerfully 
and read the Bible deeply. I appreciate so much of what Bob uh, shared with us about reading the Bible. Some people who are so passionate about being true to the word have actually never read the whole Bible before, who are not even familiar with all of its contents. So when they use it passionately and saying that we are in a world that does not care about the word of God, and they in fact themselves have not even read it fully, can we trust the way that they are applying the word of God? What is the context? And so as I end this today, I want to encourage us is that now more than ever, there is a challenge for us as Christians, as a community, to recognize there are many voices, many narratives in our presence, but not all of them are from God. Yet many of them do speak truth. And this is the, hard, the hardest ones are the ones that speak some truth, but not all truth. How do we go in there and see, I see God in this, but here I do not? And how can we as a community begin to share with each other, sharpen each other, challenge each other, so that we may stay true to the calling that we have in Jesus Christ, to be the church that we are called to be? So much... I'm seeing of racist narratives in our day today have been because we have bought into false narratives. How could we begin to return to the true narrative of God so that we can discern false narratives when they come? Let's be people of grace, truth, and love again. Amen.